Welcome to Hit for Six. We're still in lockdown, still producing podcasts as we go. Michael, how are you? Yeah, I'm all right, Rob. Plugging away, you know, nice blue skies outside. Thinking about buying a netball hoop so I can uh, shoot some hoops, get ready for the mixed, next mixed netball season. Um, how about you? Yeah, I'm, I'm not bad. It is The weather's lovely. and I'm not sure whether, I was discussing this with a colleague today, whether we think that's a good thing or a really bad thing. I don't know if I'd be happier if the weather was terrible and I'd be like, well, I'm not really missing much anyway by being inside all the time. Or whether the fact it's sunny, I live in a nice, kind of lots of windows in my flat, whether that's kind of a redeeming feature that makes lockdown less bad because at least it's sunny outside. I'm not sure which side of the fence I fall on, whether it's a good thing or a bad thing. But I think the bad weather, I think the bad weather has an impact on your mood as well, though, I think, over time. Like, I remember last week when it was really pretty grim weather and I was feeling a lot glummer and a bit grumpier. And I think, I think even though it's on the other side of the window, I think it still has a negative effect, so... I think blue skies for me, please. Yeah, and, and blue skies potentially that we might be seeing a bit of cricket later this summer. Uh, yeah. The UCB seem pretty hell-bent on having this West Indies tour go ahead. And I think it might do. I think it probably makes sense that cricket and an international test series is probably an easier sporting event to do socially distant or like sort of within guidelines and with kind of, you know, all the relevant... Because you've only got what, 11 players on each side, two umpires, then they're going to be far away from each other for most of the day. And because they're just playing each other, it's kind of more self-contained than something like a, like a league system where you're playing multiple teams uh, week in, week out. There's kind of more, more risk involved. So I, I do think, I'm starting to believe that we will see some, albeit on TV, some, uh, some international cricket later in the summer. What, what do you reckon? So I would say your points about the fact that it's two teams just playing each other, it's not a league system, they make sense. And, you know, you could get all 22 or whatever it is, all 30, including the squad, um, in social isolation. So there's no risk of it going outside that bubble. I will say that I don't think the arguments about them all being away from each other, there's not too much physical contact, have much pull because just them chucking the ball around the outfield, that's yeah, yeah, no, no, you're, you're, really yeah. Sometimes. I've okay. seen that. Kukabar have made a gel, haven't they? They've made a wax that will replace shining the ball so you don't need saliva anymore. Um, so that's something. But I guess just, yeah, them chucking it around to each other is equivalent of shaking hands. So that's still an issue. Yeah, 100%. They say they reckon golf is one of the only ones that will kind of be effective, really effective. Um, yeah, that would be, definitely. And potentially tennis as well, actually. Although I suppose you're still touching the ball, I guess. So. Yeah, yeah, all those kind of, all those kind of things. So, but anyway, um, I do think it's going to happen. I'm really hopeful. Uh, so, you know, maybe not just blue skies outside, but blue skies in my heart that I'm going to see Jason Holder leading his men against England a little bit later in the year. Uh, well, to be honest, you can see why, because, you know, you saw that article, coronavirus could cost the ECB £380 million. Pounds. I would leave a pretty sizable hole. Like, you can see why they're so desperate to get it to, get it to happen, especially now to cancel the 100. Yeah, of course. And we, we won't dwell too much on the cancelling of the 100, but it was inevitable sensible right decision we talked about it on the previous podcast it was surely going to happen and it has indeed happened uh, but while we wait for cricket to resume uh, we thought we'd do a little mini series don't, don't we michael maybe looking back at our england test 11 from the last from our lifetime living memory really yeah. sort of 2000 to the present day what are, what are our rules how, how are we going about it so I think each episode we both come with our case for, you know, whichever position. We come with our selected 
opener, our selected number four, our selected spinning all-rounder, whatever. And then we've got to decide, I suppose we've got to decide the makeup of the team. We've got to decide, you know, how many fast bowlers, how many all-rounders, do we include a spinner, two spinners, that sort of thing. So I suppose we could use this first episode to lay out those ground rules. Well, let's do it. I mean, for me, it's, it's pretty simple. This is kind of how Justin Langer talked about picking a test team in the, the Amazon Prime test series because you want your six best batsmen, a wicketkeeper who can hopefully bat and four bowlers who think you're going to take wickets. That for me is your kind of your template of a good side. Most likely given we're England one spinner and uh, three seamers and we'll almost certainly have an all-rounder in there you imagine with, uh, with Stokes or, or Flintoff floating about. So I, for me I feel that feels like the most natural and sensible. I mean I was going to say it wouldn't quite be an England team if we didn't have several bowlers who could bat a bit as well as a couple of wicket keepers who aren't keeping but batting. That goes without saying. But if we, if we take that at least as our kind of general template, I think, I think that'll be a, um, a good start. So, so should, we, um, should we start with openers then? Well, well, opener. One opener. We're going to have 11, we're gonna have 11 episodes, aren't we? So episode one is one opener. Go on, you have to pick one person to open the back of England. Who would it be? Oh, the no. last few years, who would it be? There hasn't been one standout batsman in the last 20 years, so I've no idea who you're going to pick. Yeah, I've got no idea. Got no idea. I'm feeling a bit peckish though, so maybe the chef. Guys, that, that is dreadful. I think I think I might edit that out. That's that bad. I think there's no doubt. Um, obviously, Alistair Cook, top of the order. Especially as you know, Rob, we were saying you've got to have your one slightly more conservative, slightly more knuckle down kind of opener, and then your one more aggressive opener. And yeah. if you're choosing your conservative knuckle-down opener, I mean, Andrew Strauss is a pretty good bat, and uh, although I suppose he was maybe a bit more aggressive, but, I mean, Alistair Cook's just a clear and obvious choice, isn't he? Yeah, I mean, who, who will partner him with something we'll, we'll leave for next week? I think, I mean, you think kind of, what, 12,000 test runs, most test runs of any English batsman, most test runs of any left-hander in, you know, cricket history, and some of those mammoth innings as well. I know he never got triple hundred, which is probably the only kind of, a feather from, like missing from his cap, the only kind of accolade that he never quite achieved. But some massive double hundreds and scored runs all over the world in all conditions. And yeah, I think he's it's like a no brainer that he's yeah, he's kind of effectively first name on the team sheet, top of the order. A, I, think, a I think just the longevity of him as well. I mean, just did it for years and years and years. Obviously, he had a, a few lean periods, but he just he was there for so long and he papered over so many cracks at the top of our order for a long time. And also, you go back to his debut in India. What was he at? How old was he? 22? Maybe even younger? And yeah, he went 22. 60 in his first innings, like, as the rest of the batting wasn't doing great. And he just comes in, literally just jumped off the flight, and instantly looks at home. And I think that just set the, set the tone for his whole career, didn't it? Yeah, undoubtedly did. Uh, I'm just having a look now. Yeah, 21. 21. 22 later that, that year, born on Christmas Day. As was Marcus Triscothic and as was Simon Jones, which I think is extraordinary. That's a real good nugget. Those at, at one point, England had three players in the England setup who all had a birthday on Christmas Day. It'll never happen again, surely. Uh, but um, Good I'll trivia question you, Rob. Um, that debut of Alistair Cook, can you name the other two England players to make their debut that game? Oh, I don't know. Panasar? That's one, but if you get the second one, I'll be astounded. Is it Ian Salisbury? No, you got the first name right. Ooh, interesting. I think he's called Ian. Anyway, um, that's that all-rounding spin, all-rounder spinner, Blackwell. Oh uh, yeah, of course. Fair enough. Well, there we go. 
Well, um, didn't quite have as long a test career as Alistair Cook, but you know. No, they didn't. You get those, don't they? People who made their debut on the same day, and you look at one issue versus versus the other one, and think, wow, how far their careers diverged from from that point. Um, one thing though that made me think with Alistair Cook and with kind of as we make this selection, there's obviously an aspect of it where we kind of we view Alistair Cook as a player over the whole of his career. But actually, we really want to be picking these players when they're at their peak, at their best. Now, he's someone who was pretty consistent. But I suppose when we're weighing up who else we might be selecting, are we thinking more kind of specifics? Like, that player was really good for that short period of time. So, like a Steve Harmison when he was bowling, there was that point when he got to number one in the world and was like a really dangerous bowler. Are we thinking, are we taking them at their peak? Or are we trying to view them as a player over like a longer period? I think you can't you can't just base it on statistics. You can't just base it on the numbers. Like that's obviously a huge part of it. But for me, a huge part of it is the feeling. You know, it's the um, emotions that you felt when 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 watching them at their best, and it's the emotions that you remember. That's what you remember. Um, so for me, like Carms is a really good example, right? Obviously, didn't keep it going for his whole career, but for a period, he was the best fast bowler in the world, or maybe the most feared fast bowler in the world. So, like, he definitely have a case for it for me because he was at the very, very pinnacle. But we're favouring someone like that over a, uh, um, maybe some like similar times, similar statistics, and Matthew Hoggard, who was more kind of steady uh, and consistent. You know, I've got a soft spot for him as well because his book's brilliant. But um, yeah, we'll get onto the fast bowlers there. I think it's a lot of different factors, and they've all got to have an equal equal say in the argument. Okay, sure. Fair, fair enough. So we're saying Alistair Cook at the top of the order. Uh, the other thing, of course, to factor in with him is England captain for, for a pretty long period of time in the end. Um, is he someone you'd be considering? We'll, we'll select the captain at the end, but is he someone you think might be the person you'd have captaining your England team? He's got, he's got to absolutely be on the shortlist. Um, I suppose we'll know more as we go through the team. But yeah, you can't discount Alistair Cook from being the captain. Go on, what do you think his strengths were as a captain and what about, we- what about weaknesses? Well, strengths were, one, he could lead with his performances for a lot of the time. I know that, you know, over time his average went down as captain, but he was still seen as one of the premier, genuine, world-class players in that team throughout his captaincy when there were other weaknesses in the team. So someone, you know, the rest of the team could look up to and respect. He was, I mean, a really good bloke, like, you know, very few enemies. Um, I think would have treated people very fairly. They would have respected him. Um, and I guess weaknesses, you'd have to say, maybe not the most original thinker in the field in terms of tactics, maybe a bit too conservative. Um, how about, what do you think? Yeah, I, I mean, I agree with all that. I, I wonder maybe also if he was maybe too much of a, a yes man for the ECB. Now that's potentially harsh. I think there's something enormous amount to be said for uh, loyalty and but in just generally they Alice was good at helping put on a united front as being you know as part of the ECB and kind of taking his responsibility corporately for being a figurehead for the game in this country as a whole but I wonder sometimes if therefore he wasn't quite his his own man or the you know he let kind of coaches and, and administrators and selectors maybe shape what an Alistair Cook England team looked like more than maybe he, it would have been if he'd had his, you know, had total autonomy. Maybe, maybe that's harsh because I'm, I'm a huge I, fan I of this, but I just get that feeling maybe he's a little bit safe, conservative and yeah. a bit of a yes man. But that, that is, I, I mean, he, he wouldn't be happy if you heard me say that. So, 
I think also that he's paired, you know, for a lot of his time as captain, Andy Flower was in charge. And Andy Flower obviously ran a very strict camp. I think any captain who particularly pushed back towards that wouldn't have lasted long. So I think that's also got to be considered. He was a captain fit for the sort of more senior leadership above him. Um, yeah, and, and worth saying that prior to him becoming captain, Andy Flower was a coach already and had been very successful. Yeah. So he, he obviously, was the, the, when South Africa came over to um, England in 2012 and won, and that, and that was kind of Strauss's last series, that wasn't a great end point for Strauss, but up to that point, we'd been very successful. And then Cook took um, us to India and we won. And so he, he'd become captain in his first series. We, he'd been very successful, kind of following on from what had come before. And so it makes complete sense why he kind of, Almost, he, he was a continuity captaincy, certainly in the, for the first part of his, of his time as England, as England skipper. Uh, and, and so you can certainly see how, how that came about. So we'll, we'll, we'll put his name in the, in the hat. He's one of, but he's, he's obviously standout cap candidate and first in my team sheet in terms of... Uh, in terms of I'll like, tell you what, the only thing I would say um, that we didn't mention before when talking about his strengths and weaknesses, not as a captain... No, this is partly, I guess, as a captain, but also as a player, is you have to consider the domino line of openers who went to open alongside him after Strauss. And obviously a huge amount of the reason they didn't succeed is because they weren't good enough or, you know, they weren't right for international cricket, all sorts of reasons. But I remember reading a couple of interesting articles, which was how difficult it must be to be stepping into the shoes of England opener at the other end to Alistair Cook and sort of questioning whether he maybe wasn't as supportive maybe as he could have been to these different partners or maybe he wasn't the easiest person to start opening alongside and I don't know I probably I probably wouldn't say that's fair I think it's be very harsh to blame Alistair Cook for all of the failed partners alongside him but is that maybe a slight factor to consider the fact that he was never able to find a successful partner again I thought about that at one point. The only bit I think where there's, there's weight to that argument or merit to it is that well, he, he was captain. So you think the first day of a test match, he's off doing media appearances. He's kind of, you know, you don't, you, they're not speaking to each other, kind of preparing together quite so much. He's probably off. And then he turns up and is like, right, okay, let's go. And then he wasn't kind of there as like a, a partner and supporter as much for the first couple of tests. Yeah. But at the same time, I mean, Crimea River, oh, oh, yeah, I tried opening the batting for England, but it was just so hard because the other guy was really good. I mean, you want to do that part with the other end. I mean, I've opened the batting with you, and I found that tricky because I thought, right, well, if I get off strike, they're probably going to get a wicket anyway when they're bowling at you. So when you're <laughs> batting with someone who you know is a good player, you think, well, I've got someone down there who I can probably trust and rely on to face off some of the more difficult bowling. I mean, if that's your excuse for not making it as an England player, oh, you know, if only I'd open the batting with... Uh, you know, someone who wasn't so good, a Sam Robson or a, or an Adam Lye, that would have made me feel more adequate. Ah, that's nonsense. Yeah, sure. I mean, that's but I think you might have a point there with the fact that because he's captain, because he's so busy with all this other stuff, it might have been harder for those openers to form that partnership with him. And also, I imagine Cook might have started to get a little bit weary of having all these different partners, and he might have just started to focus more and more on his own game, which would be completely understandable when it's such a carousel at the other end. May well be right. So I think, given that, maybe he's, maybe he's not the best person for captain. Maybe you'd want someone, uh, someone in the middle order, or maybe even a bowler, dare I say it, as, as captain of this team. Controversial. Controversial. Are we going to pick someone as captain who didn't captain England? That's oh, a big one. Yeah, that, I mean, you know, occasionally, they occasionally do that. You get those kind of, like, sort of like Garth Crooks would pick his team of the season. 
<laughs> yeah, yeah, and you're like, just out of nowhere, makes Dimitar Berbatov captain. And you're like, what about John Terry? What about reaffirming that? You know, so maybe maybe we'll do that and we'll just throw in someone random. Monty Panasar is England captain. And I reckon, Michael, that is all we have time for today. A nice, short, sharp little podcast season. We pick our England 11 of our kind of living memory, which is essentially, give or take, the new millennium, 2000 onwards. First name on the team sheet. Possibly England's best back from the last 20 years, Alistair Cook. Have a, um, a wonderful evening and a great bank holiday weekend, Michael, and I'll catch up with you next week. Cheers, Rob. See you later.